Hi, and welcome to episode 10 in that year 11 human bio thing. And in this episode, we'll be looking at deoxyribonucleic acid, or DNA for short. DNA is found in two places. It's in animals, it's found in the nucleus of a cell, and it's in the nucleus, it's bound to proteins. These proteins are known as histone proteins. And the DNA is found wrapped around these histone proteins and forms a tangled network called chromatin. When these chromosomes or this chromatin condenses, it forms chromosomes. If you think about it, chromatin, so that's the substance. Soma means body, so it's bodies of chromatin, chromosomes, that hence their name. Now, new, uh, DNA is also found in the mitochondria structure, the organelle mitochondria, and there is a theory called the endosymbiont theory, which suggests that at one point mitochondria was a separate organism which had its own DNA, and then this uh, provided energy and so uh, the cell got energy from it and the um, mitochondria received the safe place to live and so that it was a symbiotic relationship anyway that's not that important but i just thought i'd mention it and dna as i said is found in the nucleus bound to uh, these histone proteins now sections of dna are known as genes and these sections of DNA determine the order or sequence of amino acids that form proteins. Hence, the sometimes we call the information that's contained on the DNA the genetic code. In other words, we say that DNA contains the blueprint for life because that's where the information that's going to code for all the proteins uh, and the enzymes, which are 3D globular proteins, are found. For those of you who are doing plant biology, there is also DNA in the chloroplast, but we're doing human bio here, so we don't need to worry about that. So let's talk about the structure of DNA. DNA is a double-stranded structure. We call it a double helix because the helix is a coiled structure, and we call that an alpha helix, but because it has two strands, we call it a double helix. And for each turn of the helix, there are 20 organic bases. Now we'll come back to what that is, because DNA, each a single molecule of DNA or a single unit of DNA is known as a nucleotide and a nucleotide consists of a phosphate group, a pentosugar, that means it's a five carbon sugar and in this case it's deoxyribose and a nitrogenous organic base or organic base and the organic bases there are four of them in DNA there's adenine and thymine which bind together and guanine and cytosine Adenine and guanine are purines, that means they are two ring structures, whereas thymine and cytosine are pyrimidines, they are single ring structures. And because adenine is always bound to thymine with two hydrogen bonds, and guanine is always bound to cytosine with three hydrogen bonds, that means you have three units across, if you like, you've got a two ringed and a one ring structure, and so the distance across between the chains is always the same. In other words, they keep an equal distance apart, they are parallel. However, the two chains run in opposite directions, and so we say that the chains are anti-parallel, against running uh, against is the anti-part, and parallel run in opposite, uh, an equal distance apart, so it's anti-parallel. The chains are bound together, the nucleotides are bound together by phosphodiester bonds, and that's a bond between the phosphate group and the pentose sugar, in this case, as I said, the deoxyribose. 
We now move on to replication of DNA. So how does DNA replicate and why does DNA replicate? Well, DNA needs to replicate because cells go through cell division to form two new cells. And this would mean that DNA would be present in one cell but not the other cell. So in order to keep the exact DNA, the DNA the same, so each new cell that's formed are genetically identical, key expression by the way, genetically identical, then you need to have the same amount of DNA in each new cell. So therefore it needs to replicate and it replicates in the part of the cell division known as interphase. So during interphase you end up with a chemical change occurring, DNA doubles, but not a mechanical change because the DNA, sorry, the cell hasn't divided it into two. So how does replication occur? Well, first of all, DNA helicase causes the DNA to unwind. Secondly, um, you have DNA polymerase which adds complementary DNA molecules to the open strand. So in other words, the double strand is divided into single strands and three nucleotides in the cytoplasm enter the nucleus and pair up with their complementary DNA partner. So A will always pair with T and G will always pair with C. And in this way, we end up with two identical DNA molecules in the cell before it goes through cell division. Now, complementary, by the way, means to uh, a complementary is spelled C-O-M-P-L-E-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. Complementary because it pairs up with its corresponding DNA. They fit together. They complement each other. It's not complement as in, oh, you look nice. You're a nice piece of DNA. That would be spelled C-O-M-P-L-I-M-E-N-T-A-R-Y. And so it's not complementary. It's complementary DNA. And then the, the cell can go through division. DNA is said to be universal. That means it's the same in all organisms. And this is very handy for when we carry out biotechnology or recombinant DNA technology, because it means we can cut the DNA with particular enzymes, restriction enzymes, and we can insert them into plasmids in another molecule, and we can then produce the, the protein that we want by transferring that DNA from one organism to a host organism. We call that transgenic organisms. But that's not really for this podcast. I thought I'd just mention it. The next process we need to talk about is protein synthesis. How are our proteins formed? Well, DNA contains the genetic code, but it's such a large molecule, it cannot leave the nucleus. Now, when we say it contains the genetic code, in other words, it's in a form that the cell the, the, needs to be translated into a form the body understands. And so the code needs to be unpacked. But because DNA can't leave the nucleus, we need something that can read the code and then take it somewhere where it can be translated into the form it's understood. So, for example, I, could, I can read um, another language. I could perhaps copy it down, but I'd need to take it to someone else to translate it into English, which is the language I understand. And so we have two processes. We have transcription, which occurs within the nucleus, and we have translation, which occurs in the cytoplasm, but occurs attached to ribosomes. And we'll come on to both those processes. The genetic code is called this because the information contained on the DNA determines the order or sequence of the amino acids. In other words, the code that's contained on them, it determines which amino acids are placed in which order. Now, what we, there are 20 amino acids, and if it was a single code, what it would mean is that there are only four amino acids that could be coded for. A would code for one, C would code for another, G would code for another, and T would code for another. 
as it is, there are actually, if you went for a double code, four times four is 16. Now there's 20 amino acids, so that's still not enough. And so we have to have what's called a triplet code of bases. And so that triplet code determines which amino acids will be inserted. Now some experiments were conducted and we know that there are some amino acids that have more than one code. And if they have more than one code, we call it a degenerate code. Also, there is what we call a start codon uh, or code, triplet code in the DNA or codon, DNA codon. And there is a three stop or nonsense codons which don't have any amino acids. This is very handy because it means that all amino acids start with the same uh, code, which is on mRNA is um, AUG, or and it codes from methionine. And there are three stop codons, and whenever this is reached, then the protein is formed. Now, I'll explain more about that because it's a little bit complicated at the moment. DNA is double-stranded, and a section of DNA will code for a particular polypeptide. And so that section, known as a gene, needs to be unwound to expose the bases for that information to be transcribed. If you like, a complementary copy needs to be made. That's the process of transcription. And then it needs to be translated. And this translation occurs within the cytoplasm. And so how does this occur? Well, when this section of DNA unwinds, the exposed area is no, you've got two strands. You've got the coding strand and the template strand. And a lot of people would think it's the coding strand that's actually uh, has a complementary copy made. This is not actually the case. It's actually the template strand that is copied and it's copied from the five prime end first. And what happens is that a molecule, RNA polymerase, not DNA polymerase this time, RNA polymerase, will allow free RNA molecules, one at a time, to pair up with their complementary DNA um, nucleotide. Now, we haven't mentioned RNA before, but RNA stands for ribonucleic acid. It's single-stranded. There are three types, and uracil replaces thymine on the RNA. Now, messenger RNA is formed at this point. It's called messenger RNA because it's going to carry the message, the genetic code message, to the cytoplasm where it can be translated. And so messenger RNA is formed one nucleotide at a time with the ribosome RNA polymerase um, leading the way. Now when RNA polymerase reaches a stop code, reaches a stop code and then it tails off. And this is the messenger RNA has been formed. So messenger RNA is formed in the nucleus. Then this strand of messenger RNA makes its way towards a nuclear pore. It's too big to move across the membrane, so it has to pass through the pores. Before it exits, the introns are cut out using special enzymes, and it's only the exons that exit. So if you think introns remain in the cell and exons join together these strands of mRNA, which are joined together by um, ligase, and that sticks these little pieces of RNA together, and then it exits the nucleus, and that is the process of transcription. Then what happens is this messenger RNA attaches itself to a ribosome. Now ribosomes are actually made up of rRNA, ribosomal RNA, which is manufactured in the nucleolus and then enters the cytoplasm to form ribosomes. And this structure, the ribosomes, is the site of protein synthesis. It's at this point that transfer RNA binds together with an amino acid and brings a specific amino acid to the ribosome. 
the transfer RNA or amino acid complex then moves along the messenger RNA until it finds its complementary um, codon. And when we say codon, that's on the messenger RNA. The series of three bases on the tRNA, the transfer RNA, are an anticodon. And they pair up, and once the, the first of these being AUG, on, which is the start codon, as I said, the transfer RNA amino acid complex has methionine as its first amino acid. Then what will happen is, based on the sequence or the codon, the sequence of three bases on the messenger RNA, another transfer RNA amino acid complex will line up alongside the first amino acid transfer RNA complex and a peptide bond will form between the two amino acids. Once this has occurred, the ribosome will move along one space or if you like along to a next set of three codon, uh, next three, um, three nucleotides and a codon and this allows the first transfer RNA to go back into the cytoplasm to pair up to, to bind to a new amino acid which is the sequence of which uh, the, the anticodon determines what, which amino acid that will be. So in this way the translation occurs and so translation is the basically taking the code that occurred in the nucleus from the messenger RNA and converting it into amino acids and when this process will continue the uh, transfer RNA will continue to add on amino acids and the ribosome will keep moving along holding them in place while that peptide bond forms and then when a stop codon is reached no further amino acid can be added we have formed the first, the primary structure of an amine, of a protein. That primary structure of a protein is known as a chain of amino acids. And if it's a long chain, it's poly, and because it's uh, made up of a lot of peptide bonds, we call it a polypeptide. And therefore, one gene codes for one polypeptide. Now, this chain will then fold, and there's two types of folding. There's alpha folding, which is an alpha helix, or there's beta folding, which is like corrugated, you know, the zigzag of a corrugated piece of iron. And so that's called beta pleated, sheet, uh, beta pleated folding. Alpha helix folding and beta pleated folding are held together by hydrogen bonds, and this is the, tush, the secondary structure, the secondary structure, for example, keratin in your nails. Then the tertiary structure is determined by the side groups. Amino acids are made up of an amine group, which is NH3, and because the hydrogen ions have come off the carboxyl group, it forms carboxylic acid type thing, so it's called an amino acid. And there are R groups on the side, which can be anything, and so the side groups determine the shape of the molecule. So it folds. You might have a hydrophilic hydrophobic action, or you might have two sulfur groups on the side, which form a disulfide bond which is very very strong and so the molecule folds and folds and folds and folds to form a tertiary structure now this will form if it's a an enzyme a globular protein although there's another stage to come to become an enzyme and then a tertiary structure is where several polypeptide join, chains join together for example hemoglobin yes it has an iron at the center but it has two alpha globin molecules which are proteins and two beta globin molecules and that's what forms hemoglobin and in this way gene expression occurs it's the expression of the gene by forming a protein now i appreciate that protein synthesis can be quite 
challenging so I would recommend looking at videos on transcription and translation there's some great videos on YouTube um, I think hopefully you understood what I was saying but I'd certainly recommend that McGraw-Hill animations are very good as well so I'd recommend those they're particularly helpful and they're only two minutes long now once that protein has been formed uh, don't forget this protein synthesis occurs at the endoplasmic reticulum, the rough endoplasmic reticulum, and these vesicles then break off and take these proteins that are formed to the Golgi apparatus where this enzyme or protein is structured and packaged. So it's packaged and modified and it's maybe modified by adding particular things to it to make it active. And that enzyme, if it's an enzyme, will remain in the cell perhaps to be used or it'll be removed by vesicles out of the cell and that would be by the process of exocytosis. So you can see how this links to an earlier chapter in your text or to when we looked at movement out into and out of the cell by vesicular transport. Finally, in this section, we move on to epigenetics. Epigenetics is the study of phenotypic expression of genes and it depends on the factors controlling transcription and translation during protein synthesis, the products of other genes and the environment. Epigenetics simply means above the genes. So what this means is that while some factors can actually influence and change the DNA itself, permanent changes to DNA are mutations, that's not what we're actually talking about. What we're talking about is the fact that you can get what we call histone modification. And what we mean by that is that certain sections of DNA need to be exposed in order for them to be transcribed and translated. And so when they're exposed, transcription and translation or gene expression can occur to form a protein. However, this can't occur if, or sometimes these molecules, if the histones tighten um, or they are loosened, then two processes can either allow or enhance gene expression or they can stop gene expression. So one of these processes of histone modification is known as acetylation. Now acetylation causes the histone proteins to unwind slightly. This exposes certain sections of DNA that would otherwise not be transcribed and translated. And in this way, you are exposing that gene for translation and transcri transcription and translation. And so this enhances gene expression. Other things can cause methylation. Methylation causes the histones proteins to tighten up, which means that a section of DNA that was originally transcribed and translated is now hidden and can't be transcribed and translated. You haven't changed the DNA. All you've done is tighten up the protein, the histone proteins, which means that that section of DNA is no longer exposed. And so this inhibits gene expression. Now, there, when you're thinking about questions that could be asked about DNA, you obviously could be asked questions about what, uh, what is the structure of DNA, questions like that, or you could be asked, uh, the, you need to know the difference between the fact that DNA polymerase is used in um, DNA replication, whereas RNA polymerase is used in transcription or in protein synthesis. You also need to be able to contrast the differences between DNA and RNA. So know that DNA is double-stranded, whereas RNA is single-stranded. Know that DNA has the sugar deoxyribose, whereas RNA has the sugar ribose. Note that DNA has adenine, thymine, guanine and cytosine, whereas RNA has uracil instead of thymine. So these are important things to be able to tell the difference. And notice again that I contrasted each statement, and so that could be done as a table. And that is the end of this podcast.